Hey there, I'm Helen Ornelas, and I've been a life insurance, long-term care, and Medicare broker for over 20 years, helping thousands of clients during this time. I've come across all types of cases, questions, and calls from people who are in planning or in crisis and provided solutions. So welcome to the OnLive podcast with Helen Ornelas. Listen, you know as well as I do that taking care of important things in life is motivating, empowering, and even inspirational. You're thinking, what does this look like? If you're a business owner, executive, or someone who wants to know, what do I need to know about life events, how to prepare, where can I get help, you're in the right place. These life events will be coming your way, and you will receive these phone calls from your family, siblings, in-laws, grandparents, business partners, and friends. What calls do you think are coming my way? Let's find out. I'll be sharing stories, solutions from me, my clients, providers of service, and others that can help you now or in the future. We have the toolbox here on life, so if you're ready, let's get your toolbox loaded up. Okay, here we go. I'm here again. This is episode 10, believe it or not. I have Renee Balcom back, and she's been a very popular person on our podcast. There's always so much information. So this is episode 10, and today we're going to talk about 5150, which is a, a slang in California for somebody who is, let's see, temporary, involuntary, psychiatric commitment of an individual who presents a danger to themselves or due to signs of mental illness. And so, Renee, if you could just tell people a little bit about you and what you do, and then what you want people to take away from this podcast today, and then I'll just let you start with your why. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. You know what? I love, love, love having this time with you. And, and I'm so excited, Helen, that you want to venture into this subject, because I think there's a bigger need you know, coming up, especially coming out of the virus, out of COVID, there's a bigger need for this action than most people realize. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of deep dive into that with your audience today. And I also just really want to thank you for the opportunity. I've been a healthcare advocate now for over 10 years and, and my specialty is really working, not specifically, but I do a lot of work in the behavioral health component. So oftentimes I've talked about this on a couple of your other episodes, you know, oftentimes there's this idea that if you are schizophrenic or if you have a behavioral health issue that we, that somehow that ages into dementia. And in fact, it just never does. I mean, if you're schizophrenic at 14, you're going to be schizophrenic at 94, right? Right, right. Well, unfortunately, we're in a culture where our healthcare system really wants to box us in, certain behaviors box us into, you know, these buckets of titles. And my experience has been, you know, that that's really at the detriment of the of my client that does to have special uh, behavioral health needs and they need those supports. And so to strip them of those supports and maybe put them in a memory care unit, which is what we see happen a lot, is just not a necessity. So. And I'm really, really excited to be able to talk about this today and give some resources to your audience and just kind of help them figure out how to maneuver through this process. Because because when I hear 5150, we all start kind of chuckling, but then I think, 
man, what if somebody called 5150 on me? Because some days, you know, I am a little cuckoo. But like, I would be so panicked for me or a family member to have all of my rights taken away and someone to determine that I could get out and how do I get out and just that panic when you even think about you or a relative or somebody that you know um, needing to go through this process. So take it away and walk us through how this, you know, the what, why, and when of this. Okay, cool. Thank you. So the 5150 is basically a number in the state of California under the uh, legal action under the California Welfare and Institutions Guide, right? So that's where the number even comes from. It's always, you know, you'll hear on radio, like cop shows, 5150, right? So it's like, what does that mean? Where did that come from? So it really does, uh, you know, it leads, it's a decision process and it's part of the institutional codes. And so it kind of leads uh, people in a certain direction, authorities in a certain direction. And a 5150 is actually a limited hold. It's only 72 hours. And so, so let's say that you are with someone and they're having, you know, a breakdown, right? And, and, you know, maybe they've just, maybe it's just a huge anxiety breakdown and you're fearful that they could be a harm to themselves or to someone else, right? So as an example, let's say a mom with postpartum, right? So that mom, depending on what her her crisis is, her hormonal crisis and what her response to her baby is, she might need a 5150, which is 72-hour involuntary hold in a hospital setting, right? That will allow her to get immediate treatment and assessment. And that's really the steps you want to take. If someone is in crisis and you feel like, wow, we've got a situation, right? That's when you want to make a phone call to 911, tell them that you're fearful for of this for this person or, you know, that they'll hurt themselves or someone else, and that you'd like to have the authorities come in and consider putting them on a psych hold. So, and that would be the 5150. So that's step one, right? There's also a 5250, which you don't hear about so much. What a 5250 is, is after 72 hours, if the care team decides, hey, like this person needs more intensive therapy, they have to then ask for a hearing, a certification hearing, which requires the court to come in. Usually they come in via Zoom or they don't literally walk in the hospital anymore, but they are on the phone and the care team gives psychiatry and the medical doctors give their information to the hear the judge, the hearing judge, and they'll determine whether or not they want to extend the hold, right? And 5250 can go out 14 days or longer. Okay. And then there's 5252. And a 5252 is can be 180 days of being on on hold, right? So and and it's all kind of graduated, right? Once you've exhausted the 5250, you go in back into the court, you, you know, the doctors have to demonstrate your how you're responding to treatment and how they have to demonstrate the need to be able to hold you longer, you know? So is that the only way you get out is the court says, okay, you can get out now. Well, the doctors can always release. You. Oh, okay. All right. 
one with the treatment and we're going to, we're going to release the hold. So, but it's, if the doctors feel that, so it's kind of the opposite. Like if the doctors feel like they want to keep you and you don't want to stay, they have to get the court to agree for you to stay. Okay. Honest with you. I mean, this is America and, and you do have a right to leave against medical treatment, you know, medical advice anytime. I mean, it can become problematic for you. You may have to go in front of a judge and have a hearing and some other things. But, you know, um, if someone just feels adamant that they're not staying, um, they can leave. And to be honest with you, we see a lot of that behavior all around us today. I'm sure. Homeless camps that we see all around us, right? So, um, and it's, you know, we'll see if these actions are going to take on a different face as we try to get our arms around those communities. But, um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's a, also this thing that uh, saying that, you know, everyone has a right to make bad decisions for themselves. And <laughs> see a lot of that. Right. And, um, again, if to, to, to present someone as a harm to themselves, there has to be very specific criteria. Maybe they're no longer eating or feeding, you know, feeding themselves. Maybe it can't be something like, well, they don't take their meds anymore because you have a right not to take medication if you don't want to. So it's something like suicide, verbalizing suicidal ideologies, attempted suicide, um, uh, attempt to do harm to someone else, a child or a loved one of any or or anyone, even in community. Um, One of the things I did want to make certain and note here is if if a 5150 is put on an individual in the United States today, um, they are no longer eligible to own a firearm. So are legally own a firearm. Is that ever? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So that's, I guess, it's something to consider. But again, you use this, this approach when someone's in real crisis. You know, right. I've been dealing with a client myself for a little while now that I was successful in getting a 5150. And during the 5250 process, she convinced the uh, court that she was ready to go home and she could go home. And so she has gone home and, you know, the struggle begins again, right? So, so, you know, for a family, let's say a family is dealing with someone that's a harm to themselves and the court decides to send them home, you know, the question is, well, what do we do now? So my recommendation, and, you know, I I literally just hung up the phone about this. Um, My recommendation is you keep an eye on them. And if you see them going into crisis again, you take them back to the hospital requesting a 5150. And here's what happens. Asking for and obtaining a 5150, which means a medical doctor or psychiatrist has to step in and say, yes, this person is a potential harm to themselves and needs to have some evaluation and assessment. In making that request, you're documenting, you're literally going on record that there's a problem, right? Adult protective services usually gets, or child protective services usually get notifications of the 5150. Your local law enforcement will also get a notification of the 5150. So in some ways, it's a really good way to establish foundational information in the system about someone that's in trouble, right? Or potentially in trouble. So when you call 911 and you think you you have a crisis or somebody, you know, that is in your world, 
is having one of these events, do the police show up? Are they, are they like the first responders? And how do you keep you or that person from having a bad interaction with the police? Because you see that sometimes that, you know, when people are in despair, it, it just gets like out of control and people get hurt and sometimes even killed. So, mm. well, I think it's really important to try to give a description to the 911 operator of exactly what you're dealing with. So the client I was just talking about, I was very thorough and I and I when I made that phone call, I knew exactly what I was asking. And again, these are pretty charged environments, right? So and and no one, I don't care how old they are or what their mental health position is, when when someone suddenly marches in and takes you out of your surroundings and yeah. you don't willfully want to go, you know, it's going to get, it's going to elevate the room, right? It just will. Now, I usually, so I, I go in, make that phone call with a very systematic story that I want the the operator to understand the dispatcher you know person there's no there's no one armed persons in there whatever their situation is they're in their room with you know maybe they're in a bathroom with the door locked there's nothing in that room that they can harm themselves with or they're not they're not normally a physical person we feel these are the reasons why I feel we need a medical intervention. And usually we'll have a medical intervention. The EMTs will come along with law enforcement. So, oh, okay. So in, in the case of the client I was talking about, five EMTs came and a, a cop showed wow. up. And so, and, and of course, you know, she wanted to negotiate because that's what happens, right? We we think, uh-oh, our brain automatically, we fight or flight, right? So our brain automatically will go start the negotiation process. And so she became very in control of her person. But I had already painted a picture of kind of what was going on and that I was going to specifically ask for a 5150 when we got to the hospital. So So they knew what they were looking for and what to ask for and understanding what I had told them. So, so in, in this particular case, I was hoping that you could kind of share this case, obviously, without, you know, sharing any information on, you know, who they are or anything, but just kind of like how you got hired. What were the steps before? Because obviously, you just didn't meet her and then, you know, and, and start this process and how the family maybe was tolerating some of this stuff. And, and why does the family wait so long? to get people help sometimes? Well, and I think those are great questions because in this particular situation, she had been in decline for more than two years. So the family was really, really suffering through her decline. And they kept thinking they would prop her up with a solution. And sometimes, you know, the the doctors give you, well, try this, or why don't you do this? And so they were doing all of those things, but continued to see her decline. So, Mm -hmm. um, so one of the family members was told about me uh, by another professional that I work with. And um, so I went over to visit and just kind of do a consult and see how they were doing. And this particular family, I'm in Sacramento, and this family is in the San Francisco area. So 
usually I don't really have too many boundaries. There's healthcare advocacy isn't required to have boundaries or anything like that. So I can interface with someone almost anywhere. But but I wanted to uh, meet this this family and kind of understand. It's hard to get a real dynamic over the phone. Right. And you hear a lot when you enter someone's home, right? You get a different feeling that usually they don't necessarily describe over the phone. So two weeks prior to this event, I had gone to meet the client. And to be honest with you, I was a little shocked. And it's weird for me to be shocked anymore because I've seen it. <laughs> right. And I was a little shocked to find this individual in in such a stressful situation in that um, she had been bedridden for more than two years and literally was doing was being fed by a tube and all of these things. And it was all voluntary. And again, there, you know, it's unfortunate, but there are medical doctors that were agreeing. If she said, I don't want to feed myself anymore, will you just give me a, a, a feeding tube? They did, which, hmm. yeah, which yeah, you know, that's weird. Seems like you'd have registered that as being a little odd, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, she even asked me about a voluntary coma if I knew how to make that happen. And I started laughing. And Holy said, cow. Yeah, no, I don't. And and I explained to her what I did. I also explained to her that I I believe that when you have knowledge, you have a responsibility to knowledge. There are kids in this home. It's a family home, right? And I and I was disturbed by what I saw there. And I was very candid with her that in the condition she is in, she would eventually lay there and suffocate and die, right? Oh she, my gosh. That because it was a family home, I did not, by the way, she refused to have the room cleaned in over two years. Like no one could touch anything in the room. So there was literally an eighth of an inch of dust and dirt everywhere. And so now what about her bed sheets and those types of things? Were those things changed or had she been? Was flat on a bed with a very thin sheet on the bed, just over the top. And then a very thin sheet over her body. Mm. And she would, you know, pretty much be there naked in in a depends and then with a feeding tube and then the sheet covering her upper torso. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, and, you know, and again, you know, one day went into a week that went into a month that went into right. year. And the family just kept thinking it's going to get better and it just kept getting worse. Well, by the time I was there, it was pretty dire. I mean, it was you know, uh, she was really in poor condition. And so I just let her know that I would be, I would leave there and start taking steps to get her, you know, elevated care and to shift her quality of life because her, and by the way, what catapulted her into this state was she had a surgery that went awry, a back surgery that created a lot of pain. Okay. Mm. And she went on to a pain pump, which was giving pain medication pump, which is giving her opioids, right? So she had, and, and you know, this was before the opioid crisis happened, right? Right. We went into the COVID isolations. So it was really the perfect storm for mm-hmm. that is having this imbalance anyway that put her in this condition. So, so I don't, I don't want to paint a picture that this is someone that was making choices that she had control of, honestly, because in so yeah, many, it, 
it just sounds like things got out of out of control for a lot of, of different reasons. And and I'm sure with the family they just get confused and there's maybe some embarrassment or shame that this is even kind of going on and you know, and that's why they called you in. Yeah. Yeah. And so and and I had a good rapport with her. I I you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, I'm really blessed because rarely do I not have a rapport. I, I really believe in honoring the person, honoring the individual. I don't know her pain, so I'm going to respect her pain as she sees it and understands it. I don't know her, you know, what her point of view is as an individual. I can tell when someone's a little, a little bit distorted in their point of view. However, I'm not a medical professional, so I'm going to honor their point of view, right? Right. Simply do an assessment that says this can either continue and we can, we can see a quality of life increase or not. And if I see that there's a decline or going into crisis, then that's when I have a responsibility to take the next steps. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. I was curious how receptive she was when he started talking about steps to kind of bring her out of this and and how that conversation went and were you successful? You know, I'll never forget her asking me these words. Do you think there's hope for me? Mm. And I said, of course, I think there's hope for you. I believe there's hope for anyone that's breathing air, right? That we have hope to move forward. Right. And so, and I sincerely do believe that. Like it's, I'm genuinely believe. Sure. And so, and I think I also wanted to encourage her about how strong she was because, you know, you're in this really weak physical state. You know that the situation around you is getting out of control and, and you just feel weak and diminished. And, and I really wanted to speak with her about how tough she really was because you know, I will tell you, I couldn't have done it. I couldn't lay in a bed for, you know, two and a half years, right? Right. And, and what I told her was that we would, I would put her in a situation where I would ask her to exchange her discomfort for, because I said, look, you're having discomfort. I believe it's real discomfort. I'm going to, and I know you can manage it because you have been. So I'm going to ask you to exchange that for maybe the same type of discomfort, same discomfort, but it's going to look different because if you're uncomfortable, but you're progressing, you know, that's okay. If you're still having pain, but you're progressing and you're out of bed, that's okay. So, so I, you know, was very clear with her and she, she had never had, you know, she, we all, not just her, but most of us were in a problem and we just want, we just want it fixed. I just fix my problem, but rarely are problems just go from light to dark or dark to light. Right. There's right. And so, so I explained that to her, like, we're going to take a journey together and it's going to be a process and it's not going to be completely comfortable for you, but the process should make your quality of life better. And that's my goal. So then I left and she called me a few times and we talked and she just wanted to get some reassurance. And then one day, about, I don't know, seven or eight days after I'd first met her, she called and told me she was in worse crisis. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, okay, so I hear you asking me for help and I want you to know these are the steps I'm going to take to give it to you. I'm going to come there. I'm going to bring call an ambulance. We're going to go to a hospital. 
And she was like, she said, okay. So I was happy that she said that, got in my car. Literally, I'll tell you a funny side of the story. I'm in my car driving because I'm like so excited that she's willing, willfully. Right. And I realized I'd left in like my house flip flop. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, because you're just so willing to, to help her, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. I learned my lesson. I have an extra pair of shoes in my trunk now. <laughs> how much credibility do I lose walking in in my flip flops, right? Because, you know, trying to, trying to get someone care. But I, I don't know. No one ever mentioned it. And I never noticed anybody really you know, dwelling on it. But still, you know, I just, as I'm driving, I'm thinking, oh my God, I don't have shoes on. <laughs> I did try to stop to put some, but it, was, it wasn't as easy as you would think. But anyway, so, you know, we were successful in getting her 5150. It's a process. I was there almost eight hours. And wow. It was a long night. And, and typical of most people with a behavioral health issue, they start getting scared and they know they need help. They know they want help, but they're afraid of it, right? And they're afraid of what that might look like. So, so she is a bit of a chameleon. And when the doctors came in, she could tell a pretty good story about herself, right? She could kind of, uh, which was interesting to observe. That's why I think it's really important for anyone that goes through this process to stay with that person and watch because you can kind of sit out of their eyesight and shake your head yes or no. Right. And, and the psychiatrists and the, the social workers are seeing that, yeah, we're not getting the full story. And listen, they know, you know, they know they're not going to get the full story. If everything she was saying was true, she wouldn't be there. Right. Right. So they're aware of that. So, and then, and then, you know, because the systems are just overworked and understaffed, they weren't sure they wanted to do a 5150. And I needed to sit down with them and really impart on the medical professionals that this is a family home. We're seeing children going into crisis now that are talking about wanting to commit suicide. Oh, wow. You know, that it's far reaching. It's just not one individual making a decision. She, it's affecting the rest of their family and that we needed medical intervention. And that's really what the hold is all about. You know, give me 72 hours. You assess her, you watch her, you make a decision, and then tell me what the next step is. And so it didn't, I don't want to say it took convincing. I think it took, they needed to see a bigger picture than they yeah. were seeing. Right? So they needed to see like the, the whole human side of it and how this was just bleeding into every aspect of that family. And you know, uh, was this a teenager or a young adult that, that's in the home that was, you know, thinking about suicide? And, you know, yeah. this is that that particular group of kids are really struggling right now, right? They, right. They, most of them have been displaced in their education for a couple of years that, you know, their social lives have not been, you know, well well served. I mean, I, I have a niece, honestly, that's 18, getting ready. She's graduating in May, getting ready to try to decide college. And she said, aunt, I haven't even had a date ever. When COVID, she was too young, her dad wouldn't let her date. And now that she's old enough, she really doesn't have a social circle. So yeah, it's pretty, and she's a beautiful girl. You know, when, when you hear that, it's like, there, there are certain aspects of how the pandemic has affected kids and families that really take you back that you just don't consider until they tell you, right? right. 
And she said, look, I've been in high school four years and I've lost almost three years of my education. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something? So, so now you put, you take that same age person and you put them in a home that they've been in. That's got a lot of trauma going in. Right. right? And they're, the reason I believe the reason start people talk about suicide is because they don't have a vision for hope. They can't see their way out of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of the positives that does come with an involuntary hold is actions being taken, steps are being taken. You know, the security of your family has been noticed and notified and put on notice, right? And and the authorities are looking closely at that. So I think there's a lot of positive things to be said about stepping in and making a decision on behalf of the whole group, right? So did you still work with her and the team once she was uh, committed for that 72 hours? And did you see any improvements? Did, did, did you kind of see her call for help was really a, a real call to try and start inching her way out of this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, she's doing pretty well. You know, she's... Um, okay. So they wanted to release her. She, they, she went into a 5250 and we were waiting for the hearing, for the certification hearing. The judge heard her part and had a review done for her. And so he, he held off on his decision a couple of days. And then the insurance company, we were trying to get, I was working to get her, uh, rather than sent back home, sent into a skilled facility because of the feeding tube and some other things, sent into a skilled facility that had a psych support system as well and see if we could get her further treatment, right? So the insurance company, you know, denied it. And so I put in an appeal, which bought us three more days. Okay. (laughs) A little trickery. Just buying time and also working really, really closely with the discharge team and the doctors about on behalf of the family. Like, this is what we're trying to set up at home. We need more time. And so I will tell you, I feel like all parties, there was a lot of compassion and all the parties, you know, gave us a little bit of breathing room. You know, they didn't just open the door and roll her out and say, see you next time. Right. Right. they really understood that we were trying to take steps to be successful with her. And so she's home and she came home with some social rules at home. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And those rules are, you know, it's a family home. You need to wear clothes. You know, we, they, we brought in a a bed that allows her head to be elevated. So she's not flat on her back. And so there's some elevation. Uh, We're working on the feeding, you know, and getting rid of that too. And, and I think, you know, more than anything, she understands that we're not going to let her, we, we won't idly let her fail because right. we see her declining again, we call an ambulance and ask for another one at 5150. So, and I believe the next time, if it occurs again, we will get into the 5250 and we'll get in beyond because we've laid the foundation for that already. And so during this process, it sounds like since you're still working for the family, you were able to keep a a really good relationship. So you didn't become like an evil person to her or somebody that was bringing harm. Uh, She and the family recognized that you were a really good support uh, in helping them navigate this issue. 
Well, and I think part of that goes back to the time with her in the emergency room, right? Mm -hmm. I kept reassuring her that first of all, none of it, nothing is punitive, right? None of it was punitive. It's, you know, she has not, I completely, I've been doing this long enough that I understand the opioid crisis. I've experienced it before. I understand COVID and how devastating that's been for families. And, you know, she just, again, she just found herself in a perfect storm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that that she has what it takes emotionally and mentally to pull herself through it. And I'm there to help her do that, right? That it would never, I, I it's not my, I would never be punitive towards her. It's not my role in her life, right? So my role is to be a support for her and her family. Now, with that said, I'm not going to kid myself that there's not a trust, a little bit of a trust, like, is she going to come in here and do that again? Right, right. Um, Because sometimes, even if we know the pill's good for us, it's not always the pill we want to take, right? Right. So she, I may just be that pill that's like, that was not easy to swallow, <laughs> even when she knows it was the right thing, right? And she knows, and I was, I always am and always will be respectful and, you know, cognizant of her wishes and desires. So once she was hospitalized, once they admitted her, I did not go back to visit her because I wanted them to be able to get an uninfluenced assessment, Got right? It. I felt, and I did just didn't feel it was appropriate for me to influence that at all. I really wanted them to be able to do that. And I think if she's annoyed with me at all, it's because I didn't come back for four days or six. Oh, right. And while she was in the hospital, they did, uh, she agreed to some medications that seemed to be providing clarity for her. Now it takes a little while for these meds to fully onboard, right? To fully make an impact on you. But um, she's already starting. The, the family's reporting that they're already starting to see a little bit of the old old person coming back. That's great news. So I'm optimistic for sure. And then, and then listen, I still I still don't want to ignore the fact that she could be having real pain from this back surgery. Right. And so I have a plan to have that addressed, but. But you have to get through the psych side of it first, and then she can be receptive to further treatment or care for her back. Do you think having a third party kind of being the interface to this issue and crisis made it uh, easier for the family to move forward? And it's not your husband or your daughter or brother or sister or mother trying to, you know, navigate this. It's somebody who gets to come in and you know, make it easier for people to move forward without all that emotional attachment? Yeah, I think that's a great question, too, because so someone that's in this state that she was in is very controlling of their environment, right? She controlled everything in her environment. And her husband was even sharing with me, she knew I was coming over there and she had him take a paper and was writing, she was dictating orders to him. When Renee gets here, she needs to do this and this and this and this and this. And so, you know, he had this whole list of to-dos for for me when I got there. And of course, I walked in with five EMTs and a cop and I did it my way. (laughs) Right. He just said, holy cow, I had no idea this was even possible, right? Right, right. So I think there was relief in the family in that the bartering and the negotiation wasn't on the table anymore. Like I 
And and for them, and listen, their family saw her every day at the hospital. They made a point of, you know, showing her love and, you know, letting them know that they're committed to her. But again, it's a family home and there has to be kind of rules of engagement there and for everybody's well-being. And so, um, so, you know, I see her really wanting to be supportive of those rules. She's so far, she's complying, which is good. Yay. her husband was telling me the one thing she doesn't feel like she can get in the shower. And I said, you know, the truth is if she can sit on the toilet, she can get in the shower. Right. Right. <laughs> well, that's those baby steps, right? And he, he goes, can I use that line? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, wow. Because we're not talking about, you know, taking a 15 minute shower. We're talking about getting right. up, rinsing off and, and, you know, but, but she can, she can do it. And she's now up once an hour. So 10 minutes an hour, the goal is to be up twice an hour. So again, baby steps, but she's, you know, she's, and, and as we know it, her, it's all, you know, psychosomatic, the reason she doesn't want to get up, that she's experiencing in her mind, a pain that she believes is real. And Hopefully, as the meds come on board for her, she will, you know, get a real true point of view about, right. her, you know, but in the meantime, I mean, I think phantom pain is as real as any other pain, right? If you're mine, right. you have pain and you do, right? Well, I mean, it's her world and that's what she's experiencing. And wow, what a great, great story. I mean, I think this is a great success story for her and the family and and you being able to help her, but, you know, going from laying in bed for over two years to getting up once every hour, I think, you know, that in itself is pretty miraculous, right? Yeah, it's a big step. Yeah. And listen, it's a step, I will tell you, from the 16th of February. So two weeks, basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sounds so like great progress. I think it's real progress. And yeah. It's, you know, I am... Um, I know that I get excited about this process, right? Because it can be effective and and it's life-changing. And so for people that are afraid to look at addressing their loved one and saying, look, I'm going to, I have to intervene here. I will tell you when they see, I believe all of us, when we see the steps that our loved ones are willing to take on our behalf, right? And they're, and it's out of genuine care and love. I think that we respond to that. But, you know, if we have someone that's sick and we all just circle the bed and just stand there like counting off the days, right? You know, they probably won't disappoint you ultimately. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's true. So I Uh, I believe that, you know, we have to, we have to express our feelings in action and say, you know, I care enough about you that I'm willing to step into a really uncomfortable role and help you through this. And so, you know, that's what I do as a healthcare advocate for sure. Is there anything else that you want people to know that we didn't cover about this process or uh, resources? I know not everyone uh, has an advocate like you, but what can the kind of average person do? What would be their steps if they felt like they really needed this extra help? I think reaching out to your county offices, uh, law enforcement, 
I think registering potential crisis with adult protective services or child protective services is so important. And again, a huge group of overworked people, right? But right. Um, but it really lays the foundation for you to be able to step in in crisis. And that's really what, you know, involuntary holds are all about. It's about intervening in crisis and, you know, helping the person get through that time. I mean, I, I have another young man that, you know, he may, I'm going to go looking for him tonight, but he may very well be in crisis and I may have to take the same steps with him. And, you know, mom and dad are so paralyzed in fear that something's going to happen to him, that something's going to happen to him because they're not stepping in, right? Ah, right. Well, it's inevitable if we don't step in. Right. I mean, it just really is. And so, and and ironically in that case, like dad's whole thing is, yeah, about the weapon. Well, wouldn't, you know, dad likes to go hunting. Well, wouldn't, he can never have a gun. And it's like, well, let's all agree. He probably doesn't need, <laughs> that's something. I'm, right. Is that something to consider today as an right. issue? You know, this kid's 23 years old and he's in crisis. And so, you know, so yeah, it's it's interesting. And I think dad only said that because he's afraid. You know, he's not going to like me anymore. He's going to, and it's like, no, he he will love you. Yeah, this is where having an advocate or somebody kind of step in, take some of the pressure off the family. Just quickly, yeah. how do you go find him? I mean, does he live on his own and you need to like go knock on his apartment door? I mean, what does that look like? Because it sounds a little scary to me. <laughs> I found an address. I was told that he's living in a fifth wheel on a property of his, his aunt's property. Oh, okay. I'm just going to drive out there and, you know, knock on the door of the fifth wheel if I find it, see what's going on, right? Because he's not, not responding to phone calls. And, have you met him before? Yeah. Okay. Not only, so he's, this individual is on the spectrum, right? So he's- okay has some disabilities and and is also dealing with some depression and some behavioral health concerns, but but also, you know, just isn't really able to make really good choices for himself. And so I I'm just concerned about him. And mm-hmm. we may end up taking steps to conserve him. I don't know. With the client I was talking about earlier, I told her husband he may end up having to conserve her just to to uh, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's a whole other episode. After there was some movie out recently where you just saw this lawyer was just like putting all these people under conservatorship. And yeah, that's that's probably like the number one scary situation. But we'll save that one for another episode. That's <laughs> a whole other program. But 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 it is a necessary tool sometimes if you I mean, you're buying yourself a lot because you're now completely in control of this person. But and that's not always, you know, yeah. what, but, uh, but sometimes it's necessary. So, so anyway, yeah, but, but listen, we have the National Healthcare Association, uh, our Healthcare Advocacy, Advocacy Association. For anybody listening that wants to know more about advocacy, check them out. I think it's nahac.org. They're usually, healthcare advocacy is becoming more popular. And uh, usually you're going to be able to find one in your in your home. More and more hospital settings are bringing in advocates as well. Um, so if you need, I personally don't think they're favorable because the guy who's cutting the check is the one that wins. Right, so right. They can give you direction and, you know, certainly point you in a direction, right? So um, if you don't have anything else, use that resource. 
And a lot of insurance companies now are bringing in uh, some advocacy as well. So use those, you know, 1-800 numbers and, you know, help maneuver through this and navigate through it. Because there's COVID, one of the good things with COVID is they brought on a lot more uh, resources for us. So, so Renee, what I would like to know is how can somebody contact you? And we'll kind of end this episode. And I'd love to have you on once a month. We're moving to four episodes a month now. And uh, you have such interesting stuff to share. And uh, yeah. So why don't you share with us um, how we can get a hold of you and uh, any closing message that you'd like to share? Well, thank you again so much for having me. I'm in Sacramento. My number is 541-661-2369. My company is Renee and Company, and my website is www.reneecompany.com. And that gives you all the other information on how to reach me, my email address, and everything is right in there. So, and, um, and we have, uh, there's some resources in there to help, if, you know, help you navigate through this as well. So, uh, but yeah, if anyone has a question, if I can help and give you any, any advice or kind of direct anyone on the right path, I'm happy to do that. I also have three healthcare advocates that work for me and two assistants, and we do have some bandwidth. If someone's looking for a healthcare advocate, uh, we are available to take on some new clients. We we do that very gingerly because depending on, uh, you know, how much time we have on our hands, but yeah, sure. we're, we're able to do that. So, Well, Renee, thank you so much for sharing information on 5150 here in California. Now that I've kind of heard the whole process, it doesn't sound that scary, you know, having your freedom taken away, uh, especially, you know, when you're in crisis is probably the most scariest thing that can happen. So thank you again. And I look forward to getting you back on next month. Good. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody. Peace and love. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of On Life with Helen Ornelas podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share with a friend. And if you haven't already subscribed, rated, and reviewed on your favorite podcast player, please do. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas, or you might want to be a guest on my show, you can reach me directly, helen at ornellasinsurance.com, H-E-L-E-N at O-R-N-E-L-L-A-S insurance.com. In closing, this podcast is dedicated to all who believe in preparing for the future and beyond.